is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome. Hello, Dan Torres. Hey, Buzz. You ready for the storm? What storm? Oh, come on, Buzz. Look out the window. Are you, um, are you busy Sunday morning? Uh, uh, not usually, no. How about this Sunday morning? Uh, I have nothing planned, no. Is he a Grinch? <laughs> oh, right. Christmas. I f- forgot all about that. I forgot all about that. <laughs> Where is this going? Christmas. I know. Got okay. I forgot. Sunday? <laughs> well, I'm done with you, Dan Torres. That, you know that, what? Maybe I, celebrate, like maybe, maybe I celebrate on Saturday, Buzz. That's true. You, you know? You, you well, gotta, happy you gotta Hanukkah, that Dan Torres. Merry Hanukkah to you too, Buzz. All right. Merry Hanukkah. I know her well. Brian Adams. What do you have for us today? Well, again, happy second day of, I'm sorry, fifth day of Hanukkah. Fifth day of Hanukkah, man. Uh, for everybody, happy the day Festival after of Lights. Festival of Lights, the day after solstice, second day of winter. So we are embracing the return of the sun. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. As everyone knows, the angle of the earth in the northern hemisphere is at its most extreme yesterday. That's why we had so little light. Uh, today, the sun rose at 7.13, sets at 4.18. That's not much daylight, but... It's Nine hours more, and seven minutes. It's more than yesterday. So even though it's still just the start of winter, the sun has come back. And one way that people celebrated the return of the sun, the winter solstice, was by bringing green things into their homes to uh, acknowledge that the sun is returning, that... Green will soon be with us again. And who better to talk about green things in houses than Bob Schrader? Bob is a wonderful Christmas tree grower. He is the owner of Chestnut Mountain Christmas Tree Farm in both Waitley and Hatfield. Is that right? Correct. Both towns. Uh, And is enjoying his golden years here, his retirement gig, uh, putting a lot of trees into the ground, excuse me, and selling Lots of trees. Bob, let's cut to the quick here and get on, get with the main question. Fake or real? This is a science or sustainability sustainability show. Which is better for the environment, a real Christmas tree or a fake plastic petrochemical one? Well, you start, you start with the real tough questions. I see that. Well, let, let's start with the fact that about 20% of households in the United States have real Christmas trees. So 80% of households have opted for an artificial Christmas tree. Does that tell us anything um, in relationship to your uh, question? Does that include those that don't have Christmas trees at all? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. It, it's total Christmas trees percentage, yes. Uh, that, te- that tells us that, that artificial trees are much more popular. Four out of five have artificial trees. Does that make them better for the environment? That's a good question. I, I'd like to think that a real tree is better for the environment in, in terms of um, the role that it plays in uh, nurturing the soils, in, in being grown and being harvested and being recycled, and then being you know replanted from seed um, and going through that cycle about every 12 years. Um, Obviously, it's a judgment call, and I don't have the real answer to your question. Often no real answers to, to questions out there. I do know that, that uh, fake Christmas trees, if they're not used over and over and over again, end up in landfills. They've got uh, oil-based, petrochemical-based. They can't be recycled. They can be really problematic. Um, so I was on the cruising the Nature Conservancy website and uh, doing my due diligence to talk to you, and they were all over Real Christmas trees, real Christmas trees rather than fake uh, Christmas trees. So I thought that was interesting. But it's interesting that four-fifths of folks have fake Christmas trees out there. And we all know that trees are good things. Trees do what, uh, what we can't. They photosynthesize. They take in carbon dioxide. They take in water. They make those sugars. They release oxygen. So in the valley, even if you have a fake Christmas tree, you should be thanking a real tree today for the wonderful work that it does. Uh, how many trees do you have on your farm? Right now we have about 30,000. That you've, 30,000 that you've planted yourself? Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, I can't say I've done it all myself, but uh, my son and I and some help, we, we plant, we've been planting about 
um, five to six thousand a year. And how many are sold per year? We're selling about twenty five hundred per year. Uh-huh. So you planted thirty thousand. You're selling twenty five hundred a year. Does that mean you are planting more every year? Well, let me add, let me add a little detail that that might help. The first seven, eight, eight, nine years we were planting from 2010 to 2019, we were planting 3,000 trees a year. You never harvest all the trees that you plant. There's mortality for all sorts of reasons. Um, but, But about three years ago, we found that looking ahead, we don't have enough trees. We were selling more trees than we had in the pipeline, so to speak, in terms of being able to supply demand. So we've increased our planting to 6,000 a year. Realistically, you have about a 10-year rotation of trees that are growing. Um, it takes six to nine, tree, nine years to grow a tree from when we plant it as a transplant. And then you have to figure another year or two to clear out a section and replant a section. So eventually, we'll probably have on the order of fifty to 60,000 trees growing. And we're, we're you know, moving towards that point right now. So 6,000 new trees planted this year, and you sold 2,500. Is that right? Correct. Wow, that's amazing. And it takes six years to get the tree into the ground. You're buying a trees at six years old. We, we, we buy in the, you buy your trees from, from nurseries. Very few people growing trees in Massachusetts or really anywhere in the country grow their own trees from seed. There are nurseries that specialize in growing trees. We buy trees that are five years old, generally five years old. They're called a, called a plug two, uh, and we'll plant that uh, in the spring, in April. And with any good luck, we will harvest that tree seven to nine years later when it's in the order of seven to eight feet tall. Wow, so it's a 12-year process, 13-year process to get that tree from seed to harvestable. And harvestable is six foot or so, is that right? Well, seven to to eight is the preferred height. Uh Of course, most people have an eight-foot ceiling, so if if you get to eight feet, you're ending up having to shorten the tree unless you have a, a taller ceiling. You grow a number of different species of trees, is that correct? We grow 99% fir trees. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, and what kinds of fir? Uh, balsam fir, Fraser fir, Canaan fir, Concolor fir. If you go back in time, you know, 30 or 40 years, um, Scotch pine and spruce were much more popular. They, they were the popular tree. They grew quicker. But that market has completely changed, and now it's, it's pretty much 99% fir trees that are sold. What is it about fir trees that make them so worthy of sale? Well, they're very soft to the touch. They're fragrant. Um, they have a nice shape. They're, they grow relatively quickly. Uh, if you've ever... If you've ever had a Colorado blue spruce, you would understand. Ouch, ouch. Just there thinking about it makes there me you go. cringe. Yeah, not, you don't want to grab those needles. Yeah. And also, I, I've only been growing trees for 12 years, so I don't have a long history of, you know, what that transition was. Uh, but, but firs are the trees that are grown, uh, particularly in the Northeast. So before you were a tree grower, you worked at... UMass at the uh, Cooperative Extension there for a long time. What got you into the tree business? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Actually, it was an opportunity that arose. Uh, I was actually looking to buy a farm in retirement. That was always a, a dream that I had, um, uh, sort of based on, on very good experiences as a youth working on a dairy farm. And so about Ten years before I bought the farm, I started to think about, you know, where would I, where could I find a piece of land and, and perhaps, uh, you know, in close proximity to the valley. And so I began that process, and, and that led me to purchasing the land we had in 2010. And, and what did you, what sort of knowledge base did you have? I mean, it seems pretty ambitious to say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Christmas tree farmer. I mean, you got to have some base of knowledge of how to grow trees, right? Yeah, it, it helps for sure. But in hindsight, I was—I've been very—I've been very fortunate. The farm that I bought, and the reason we're growing Christmas trees, 
is it had a great great number of overgrown Christmas trees on the farm when we purchased it. It was previously owned by an individual that grew wholesale Christmas trees. So it seemed like a natural to um, let's continue growing Christmas trees. And then what I also found is there's a uh, grower association, Mass Christmas Tree Association, um, that has a number of members who are more than ready to help any grower to, um, with the ins and outs of, of being able to grow and market a Christmas tree. So those individuals have been incredibly helpful to me. The thing you enjoy most about growing Christmas trees, what's that? I like being outside. I like, I like working with the land. Um, I think in hindsight, if I was growing vegetables, it would be a very frustrating experience. I think the Christmas tree and, and its long, long life cycle gives me more time to work on, on each of the trees individually. Um, and it has, and there is, except for the Christmas season, there's not a great deal of pressure in terms of selling and marketing the trees. But there's still a lot of work uh, that goes on. I mean, you don't, it's not just a one month of a year, you got to go out there and sell the trees. You got a lot of work to do the other 11 months, right? Um, I'd say nine months, maybe. You can, you, can, you can slack off a bit in January, February, and March, but as soon as April comes around and the ground is thawed, there's work right through to Christmas season. Everybody should slack off in January, February, and March. Those are the slacker-off months, as far as I'm concerned. We are talking with Bob Schaefer. I'm sorry, Bob Schrader. Bob uh, is a Christmas tree farmer. He owns Chestnut Mountain Christmas Tree Farm in both Waitley and Hatfield. You cannot go there now because you are sold out of trees. Is that right? Uh, yes. So if you're yes. one of those last-minute Christmas tree shoppers, you're going to have to go somewhere else. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, more Christmas tree talk with Bob Schrader. So stay with us. Oh, Christmas this tree. is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. Oh, 101.5 WHMP. How lovely are the branches. Oh, Christmas tree. Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, 
Literacy Project is the place for you. Consumers have received or will soon get $2 billion of Wells Fargo's $3.7 billion settlement with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The watchdog agency negotiated the settlement with the bank, resolving years of customer abuses the agency says harmed 16 million people. Federal safety regulators report thousands of cars with lethal Takata airbags are still on the highway and the death toll continues to rise. The defective airbags spray metal particles through the cabin when they deploy. At least five people have been killed by the airbags so far this year. Used car prices have fallen, but they're still higher than before the pandemic. ICCars.com conducted a study of 10-year-old used cars, analyzing the average price against remaining miles. The 2012 Chevy Impala came out on top with a cost of $87 per 1,000 miles. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Peace, I wanted to ask you, Bob Schrader, who um, owned your Christmas tree farmer, and um, you have the Chestnut Mountain Christmas tree farm. Uh, I, for decades, four and a half decades, have been buying our Christmas trees from uh, the Cranstons, you know, Tom Cranston and... Cynthia Cranston and their son Seth, who runs a Christmas tree farm in, in Ashfield. Do you know those folks? Oh yes, yes. They would they would be an example of the of the the tree growers who are more than willing to help out others who are entering the business. That's really nice to hear, uh, um, and I'm not surprised to hear that. But I, I wanted to ask you. It used to be I remember when our trees that we would get from them, and they worked very hard. We see it all year round. But they would have like a hole in one side. You'd have to sort of put that up against the wall so nobody would see it. But now they have ferns too, and we, we tend to get balsams for the reasons you stated earlier. They smell great. They have those nice, pretty long needles. But they don't have holes anymore. What, what makes a hole in a tree? Well, well I think the short, the, sh- <laughs> the short answer is a combination of genetics and environment. Uh, every tree is its own its own individual, it's going to grow the way it wants to grow, but also that tree is in a location where it's receiving a certain amount of sunlight, maybe a little bit of shade. Um, it may have also been altered by a deer or a porcupine that over time has come by to rub out a section to make its antlers feel good or to eat a section when the browse in the forest is not adequate. So you got genetics and you have environment. But also you have to take into account that Christmas tree farmers go out and they shear and shape that tree every year. Mm. Every every tree is sheared once a year. And when is that shearing? When does that take place? Well, trees, the, the growth of a tree occurs primarily from about the third week in May to the 1st of July. After the 4th of July, the tree is done growing. The rest of the season is, set, is spent just hardening off that growth. So trees can be sheared anytime about mid-July on. As the season goes on, that, that woody growth gets, is, gets hotter, and so the shearing gets a little hotter. Uh, in our case, we shear our trees between ideally July 15th and September 15th. Uh, concerns about climate change? Is that a concern to you? Not not in the general thing, but in terms of the Christmas tree business? It, it's, I think it's a concern to every Christmas tree grower. It's a concern to every farmer. Um, you know, we, we this, this year we installed uh, irrigation. We put in a well. We were fortunate enough to be able to um, draw a quantity of water that would allow us to irrigate the trees that we planted this year. And the first year is the most stressful on a tree. Um, so we've been fortunate, and we put in that well because of the effect of drought over the last several years. Um, there are a number of farmers, Christmas tree farmers in the state, who lost all their transplants this year. Wow, because of the drought. Because of the drought. Wow. If, you're, if you're growing in soils that are sandy, that are, that are well-drained but don't have enough organic matter to hold the moisture, um, you're at risk of losing that tree. Wow. And so you're irrigating all of these 6,000 new trees that you're planting? Yes. Wow, that's a, a lot of work. Uh, 
seems like a, an impressive amount of care goes into into those little trees when they're well it's not it's not unlike if you if you travel through the valley in the summer you see that there's a great deal of irrigation that occurs it's a, it's primarily occurring with vegetable crops with annual crops uh, but in our case we're fortunate enough to have the water available and the equipment available uh, to be able to irrigate and I, I think that probably saved uh, a significant amount of mortality that would have occurred this year so the, the bringing in of Christmas trees to celebrate uh, the solstice and to celebrate Christmas is, is relatively new. I was uh, on the web looking at stuff, and I, I saw this 1659 proclamation from the General Court of Massachusetts that made any observance of December 25th other than a church service, a penal offense, including hanging decorations or anything. So how did the idea of bringing trees in get started? Good question. My, my understanding is that it, ha, that it began in Germany about 250 years ago, that the idea of bringing in a tree during the, the solstice time, that shortest time of the year, became a tradition. I've also recently read an article that I found interesting that the first commercial Christmas tree farm was established, I believe, in New York in around the early early 20th century, something like 1902. So the, the business of actually growing trees commercially is not that old, depending on how you, how you view 120-year history. Wow. Uh, this is a science and sustainability show, so we've got to ask this question. What's the best thing to do with the Christmas tree once the holidays are over, the most ecological thing you can do? I, I think that it, you... Ideally, you're going, to, you're going to recycle it and not have it in a landfill, but, but rather into a facility where it could be chipped and otherwise returned in some productive way to the environment. You've probably also read um, over the years that, that uh, Christmas trees are sometimes solicited by goat farmers and sheep farmers who, whose animals will eat the, um, the needles. I was going to give a shout-out to my friend Kim Cotton, who has two goats, and we bring our Christmas tree over to her and throw it over the fence, and, boy, they go at it. They just love that stuff. So uh, support your friendly goat farmer. First, support your friendly Christmas tree farmer, and then your favorite uh, goat farmer, and, and recycle that Christmas tree into the belly of a, belly of a goat. Uh, one thing that I find really interesting, and we're just about out of time, uh, I have to talk about this more later, is this whole idea of fake trees that are going up. Um, Christmas trees are wonderful in that they sequester or capture carbon dioxide. Um, they're coming out now. I don't know if you've heard about this, Bob, but with, quote, fake trees that have sort of carbon-infused plates on them. They almost look like cell phone towers, except there are a lot of plates uh, stacked like records involved. And they actually suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere the way that real trees do, only they do it in a much quicker way. So who knows? Down the road a bit, we're going to maybe see all these fake Christmas trees out there joining the real Christmas trees, but fake Christmas trees that are used for carbon storage or carbon removal. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting. But I think you'd have to ask the question, how much carbon did it take to make that tree exactly. in the beginning? Exactly. With, uh, my feeling is that with Christmas trees, you really have a like all of nature, it's some it's a zero sum game. You're you're sequestering carbon while while it's growing, and then you're releasing that carbon when when the tree is is cut and and subsequently decays. Yeah, exactly. Nothing beats the real thing. And you sold twenty five hundred trees, but you planted six thousand. So there you go. That's a that's a battle against climate change by planting trees. We've been talking. Uh, this afternoon with Bob Schrader. Bob is the owner-operator, along with his son, of Chestnut Mountain Christmas Tree Farm. He is sold out of trees, so congratulations on that. Uh, so folks looking for trees, travel up to Ashfield, right? And they could. Well, I don't know how the Cran Cranston's inventory is. It's probably pretty good. But I'm just wondering, uh, Bob, if somebody wants to come and find a tree and reserve it for next year, can they do that? You put a tag on it? We do not. Hmm. We do not. It, it's... It's very difficult. You end up babysitting trees, and and we don't have a facility where we can really protect that tree from being um, cut by somebody who didn't tag it. And it just 
through experience, we found that we can't do it. Ryan, thank you so much for bringing thank Bob Thank you, in. and happy Hanukkah, happy solstice, happy Christmas, happy whatever holiday you choose to celebrate or not to celebrate, and good luck with the weather coming up. We're not going to have to listen to Taylor Swift, are we? Oh, my goodness. Oh, fun fact before we go. Did you know that Taylor Swift grew up, don't, don't give me music now, grew up on a Christmas tree farm, and Dan Torres refused to play. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Their music's coming on. I'm sorry. Refused to play Taylor Swift's Christmas tree sorry. farm song. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Connecticut-based company operating nursing homes throughout Massachusetts, including Northampton, has reached a settlement by the Attorney General's office over failure to meet the needs of residents with substance use disorder. Athena Health Systems of Farmington has agreed to pay $1.75 million and adopt a series of critical compliance measures in a settlement. Athena Health Systems owns, operates, and manages skilled nursing homes and hospice facilities throughout New England, including Highview of Northampton. This is the largest nursing home settlement ever reached by the AG's office. Criminal charges against three people involved in an August 2021 shooting incident at the Hadley Walmart have been resolved in Hampshire Superior Court. The incident unfolded on August 22, 2021 in the bathroom of Walmart, where defendant Wilmer Alvarez Vargas of Chicopee shot and badly injured two teenagers. Days later, the two victims were charged with gun and drug charges while still recovering in the hospital from life-threatening injuries. Alvarez Vargas was sentenced to four years in state prison. The teens were sentenced to one year and probation for gun and drug charges. A planning board meeting in East Hampton on Tuesday was open to the public to discuss the massive multi-million dollar renovation of the Tasty Top on Route 10. Some residents expressed concerns about traffic, but most were in favor of the estimated $30 million project. Frank DeMarinas, owner of the property, said the comments would be addressed at the next public hearing on Tuesday, January 3rd. Plans for the property will include 188 apartments, Roots Learning Center and Gymnastics, restaurants and mixed-use warehouse buildings. Rain and snow developing this afternoon, a high of 38 to 42. Any wintry mix this evening will change over to rain. Rain will be heavy at times overnight, a low of 36 to 42. Rain and wind tomorrow morning, then scattered snow showers and much colder tomorrow afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. You're out with friends and a few drinks becomes a few too many and you decide to drive anyway. What's the worst that can happen? drive sober or get pulled over paid for by NHTSA. Well, it's been a banner week for ski areas opening new trails thanks to last weekend's natural snowfall and near constant snowmaking all week. We do have a quick bump in the road, but by Christmas Eve, the snowmaking window gets thrown wide open again. Jiminy Peak, two dozen runs, seven miles. They ski till 10 p.m. every night of the week. A half dozen for Ski Butternut and Catamount, which you sit up at a dozen now. They've got skiing till 7 p.m. at special hours for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Stratton skiing 80 trails now, 43 of those caught a fresh groom overnight. Killington, almost 100 trails, two dozen for Smuggler's Notch. Ski and ride like a beast at Vermont's biggest Icon Pass destination this winter. Killington Resort is home to the longest season in the east and the all-new K1 Lodge. Plan a visit today at Killington.com. Check out more at SnowCountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
You've been to the Atlas Farm Store. Have you been to the Atlas Farm Bookstore? So many books at Atlas Farm about nature, farming, fermenting, preserving. Like The Herbalist Kitchen. Author Brittany lives nearby on her herb farm in Conway. You might run into Brittany shopping at Atlas. The Atlas Farm Bookstore. Books for book lovers, for gardeners, for people who love to cook. Lots of kids' books, too. All with a connection to New England, because that's what the Atlas Farm Store is all about. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back. Thanks for joining us, those who are coming on board, and thanks for staying with us, those who were here for the first half on science and sustainability and Christmas trees. I love Thursday afternoons because it's Take 5 segment with Glenn Siegel. And hello, Glenn. What do you have for us today? Hello. Good to be back. Great and to have you back. Yes, I'm... Uh, very happy to be joined by uh, Jason Robinson, who is a dear friend and a great saxophonist and educator. Incredibly talented, I've heard. Yes. heard Jason play, and it's amazing what he can do. Yeah, so let me just... Uh, and what he could teach others to do. Yes, I know. <laughs> Teaching jazz seems like a tall order for me. I don't know how, how it works. Maybe Jason will explain it. It's the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, let me uh, just set the stage for folks... Uh, uh, Jason was born in Northern California and earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Jazz Studies and Philosophy from Sonoma State University and later earned a Master's and Ph.D. in Music from the University of California in San Diego. He was mentored by the bassist Mel Graves, who also recorded uh, on From the Sun, Robinson's first album as a leader. He's performed all over the world with uh, folks like George Lewis, Anthony Davis, Drew Gresh, Rudresh Mahanthapa, Marty Ehrlich, uh, and many, many others. Uh, including the Green Street Trio. Including this Green Street Trio, yes. Um, as a scholar, Robinson's work uh, uh, unpacks the relationship between improvised and popular musics, uh, experimentalism, and cultural identity. He's an assistant professor of music at Amherst College, and welcome, Jason. Thanks, Glenn and Buzz. It's really great to be here. Yeah, great. So, um, so Jason, you moved here how many years ago from California? A uh, little over 14, yeah, 14. fall of 2008 uh -huh. I, I arrived. How do you like New England? <laughs> well, on a day like this, I'm reminded <laughs> that I live in New England. I think I saw three or four different versions of snow and ice on the, the drive here. Mm-hmm, yeah. And... Um, Tell us a little bit about um, your assessment of the jazz scene in the Valley. Well, I tend to tell people that we, it's sort of an embarrassment of riches, actually. For, for such a, a small little corner of the world, we have a tremendous number of musicians that live in, in the area, um, a great roster of presenters, you know, jazz shares among them. Um, it's an incredible place. It's sort of oversized, like the, 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 op the number of opportunities to see world-class music in this beautiful corner of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, UMass uh, has a long history and continues to present many, many internationally known jazz artists. And uh, speaking of uh, jazz shares, uh, we have uh, we just had a concert with your friend and former colleague Marty Ehrlich. Uh, just I, doubt that I doubt that there's anybody who doesn't know, but just in case any mm -hmm. listener doesn't know what Jazz Shares is, why don't you just take a couple of seconds and tell sure. them? Sure. So Jazz Shares is a community-based uh, concert-giving organization that formed 11 years ago. Uh, I formed it with my wife, uh, Priscilla Page, and uh, it's, based on a jazz sh it's based on a farm share model, or CSA, where folks buy shares in a season of concerts, and that gives us the capital to uh, guarantee artist fees and cover other expenses. And uh, yeah, this year we're presenting 20 concerts, and we had Marty Ehrlich and his trio uh, at the Blue Room in East Hampton uh, last Friday. And those who can buy a share, they get all these concerts to yes. choose from. Thank you, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for a, a share, a full share, you get uh, 10 admissions to the concerts that we do, and we sell half shares as well. Um, and it's a great model that's that's been working. We have uh, 115 shareholders at the moment, and uh, 
also get support from local businesses, and we sell single tickets to the general public as well. So um, we've been averaging about two concerts a month, and uh, Jason has performed on the series a number of times, and we hope to get him back again. So um, that's part of the mix of the Valley jazz scene, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And any and I should say, uh, full disclosure, that Jason is on our board of directors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And recently I've also turned some of my my own research, sort of scholarship-oriented uh, research, toward jazz shares. I've become a bit of a proselytizer to the about the concept. Um, I recently gave a talk at the annual meeting for the Society of Ethnomusicology um, that, that met in New Orleans about a month and a half ago. Um, this, the, the format and the context for jazz shares, I believe it to be unique in the country. Really? Uh, yeah, a, a sort of shareholder-based model for presenting, I mean, cutting-edge, world-class music in our area that sort of sidesteps some of the traditional concerns in the commercial context for arts presenting um, by having people invest in a share, kind of invest in the organization, away from the mechanism through which people normally support presenting arts organizations, which is going to uh, a roster or a lineup for, for a season, sing a particular concert that you'd like to see, paying for tickets for that particular concert, or maybe becoming season ticket holders. The, the format for jazz shows is really different. People are investing in the concept of it first and foremost. And second, secondly, there is a series of individual performances that take place. The long history of uh, community-supported agriculture, CSAs, and farm shares in our area, I believe has become a sort of ready-made um, model for arts patrons in our area who want to support the cultural vitality of our region. Um, th and it's a very easy sort of leap to think, oh, I, I normally buy a farm share each year. What if I were to do the same kind of thing when it comes to bringing incredible music to our area? And it's been successful. I mean, 11 years going strong from 10 concerts in a season, which seemed like maybe a stretch at the beginning, to now easily producing 15 or 20. The, the proof's in the pudding. It works. And, I, you know, partly I think it's also due to the fact that Glenn has had such a wonderful um, career here in the area presenting adventurous music to audiences who have adventurous ears. So part of the farm share, it's sort of like knowing your farmer. <laughs> so you're going to invest in your farmer. And I think we have, have been investing in Glenn's ear to turn us on through music. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, and you're you're giving a talk uh, at Columbia in uh, in the future. Yeah, about in jazz April, um, I've been invited to to speak on the Center for Jazz Studies speaker series that happens at Columbia University. Um, I've been thinking about sort of the future uh, forms of this particular research of mine. Um, I'm trained as an ethnomusicologist um, and to a certain extent a historical musicologist, and I work sort of in popular music studies and jazz studies. For in my written scholarship. Um, so this particular project kind of lives within that context for me. Great. But Glenn, when I listen to Jason, he's so creative. You know, how do you teach that? I don't mm. know. And I always wonder, is it a product of someone's experience? Like, we're all products of our experience, right? But is our creativity a product of the experiences we've had in life? Is so you take a young musician, is he not going to be able to create, he or she, what an older musician can? I mean, I always wonder about this. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like each new generation seems to absorb things more quickly than the previous generation. So I think younger musicians are, are having that kind of sound that comes with experience, mm -hmm. and they're playing earlier. Um, I think it is possible to teach certain things um, that seem ineffable or seem like they take time to, to, to develop. I think music is, really reflects the, the human experience. So when I go to teach, I'm thinking about how to harness music as a way to explore who we are and what we do as humans, the, the kinds of connections we make with each other. Mm -hmm. Great. 
So we're going to take a break, and we we'll come back and talk with Jason Robinson, saxophonist and educator. Can't get enough listening to Jason. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now that Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky has addressed Congress, what is the future of that war? Is there any chance for peace? How many more deaths? How much more destruction? We'll explore these questions with Michael Clare, Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, who will be our guest Friday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Cooper's Corner in Florence can be a real time saver for you around the holidays. When you run out, run in. We have what you need. Cooper's is also the place to order fresh baked from scratch pies or to pick up a nice wine or fresh produce or deli party platters. Cooper's Corner, a part of the community for nearly 50 years. We're the Coopers. We're your neighbors. We treat you right. Main and Chestnut Streets, Route 9, Florence. Open every day of the year. And in Northampton, State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits has what you need for the holidays and all year long. Open Seven days. The State Street Deli has the cheese you want for holiday entertainment like genuine Italian Parmesan, free with herbs, Morbier, French Saint Andre, and award-winning domestic cheese such as Vermont cheddar, Maytag blue, and goat cheese. You'll also find at State Street a great selection of cold cuts and pâtés, and we create the best deli platters and fruit baskets. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton, open till 9 every day. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution, if any, will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. First Night Northampton is back, live and in person. 21 family-friendly venues, over 100 performances from noon to midnight. Purchase your pins at firstnightnorthampton.org. Pick them up on the second floor of Thorns Marketplace on the 31st. Your pin opens every door at the largest performing arts festival in the state. Municipal parking lots are free, so join us for music, acrobats, DJs, comics, magicians, and so much more. There's also a fantastic fireworks display at 6 p.m. Northampton First Night, a place to be on New Year's Eve. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. You know, it's not easy being Glenn Siegel uh, doing a, a jazz piece with Buzz Eisenberg because I keep stealing the, your time, Glenn, because well, I have so many questions. I'm, I'm really happy that you jumping right in, and that's, that's how the music works, right? Everyone has an idea and... That's it out there. That's it, Jason Robinson. I'm just <laughs> improvising. <laughs> so, Jason, let me uh, return to that idea of teaching. Um, how do you balance performing and teaching? Those are two very different sets of skills, and both are time-consuming and draining in their own way. Yeah, you're you're right. Um, I definitely lean on my experience as a performer out in the world making music when I teach. Um, it informs everything I do as a teacher. Um, you know, if I'm teaching a jazz history class, um, the the things I've done as a performer make their way into the, the, the way in which I deliver the material and the kinds of questions I ask to the students. Um, I mean, part, partly your question has to do with balance in general. 
And it's challenging to be both a sort of researcher as well as a teacher. Um, I had been doing that before I joined the faculty at Amherst College, and I was uh, really thrilled to come to Amherst because it is a sort of, you know, some people call it a research college or a teaching college. It's kind of, it's both. So we are all very dedicated teachers as well as, um, you know, active researchers in our own areas. And my area, I'm a, you know, uh, artist scholar who's the, the art side of that, the, the music making side, side of that. I'm a composer improviser in the sort of tradition of the AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, from Chicago, my mentor, George Lewis, uh, is a seminal figure of, of the ACM, sec- kind of second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also deeply invested in the jazz tradition, sort of straight-ahead jazz tradition um, as well. Uh, earlier today, I was playing Coltrane's Crescent. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I always cherish the opportunity to, to make the sound around me vibrate with my saxophone. So mm-hmm. I was doing that earlier. So you you maintain a practice schedule as well as performance schedule? As best I can, yeah. And and I'm I'm the type of practicer that is um, uh, kind of a functional practicer. So most of what I'm doing privately has to do with the new projects that I have coming up. Um, So right now I'm thinking about composing and using my practice time uh, to to compose. Um, I recently just received... local cultural council grant um, from Massachusetts to write a couple of pieces uh, in homage to the little town that I live in, Irving. Um, So I'm premiering two pieces next fall um, that are inspired by two of the three villages in my tiny little town. I live in Farley, so I was writing that piece earlier. Um, There'll be another one called Irving Side. Great. Oh, and the one about Farley, i got to tell you this. So I've been reading about the history of not only my town but my street. Many years ago, decades, generations ago, there, there was a wonderful group of women that lived on the street who um, became renowned, renowned in the area for their pies and their baking recipes. Um, so the, the women of Farley published a, a recipe book. I haven't found the book yet but I've seen these references to it. So the piece that I was working on earlier today is called Sweet Tooth, an homage to these women that lived on my street. Wow. (laughs) Boy, you can't get more local than that. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was going to ask you about current musical pursuits. So it seems like your, your work has been in stages and that when you, you, you dump Maybe that's not the most elegant word. Especially on a snowy day. Yeah. But you you produce two, three albums at a time or with different personnel, different conceptions. Is that the way you like to work? Well, that has been a pattern. And um, uh, the last three albums that I released, they were released all within a few months of each other in the ill-fated latter half of 2020. Um <laughs> Uh, that was a bit of a coincidence, just sort of the final, the, the goalposts of those projects happened to occur at the same time. Um, but uh, I am working on a few more projects. I have a, two different uh, ongoing large composition projects that manifest in a bunch of different ways. One of them is called For Youssef Latif mm. in honor of a five-college colleague of mine who passed a couple of years ago. Um, who taught at UMass and at Hampshire College, and incredible figure in the history of African-American music. Um, I've been inspired by his book, The Repository of Scales. So I've been writing various pieces based on some of the exercises from from that book, um, some big band pieces uh, recently. Um, and another o- ongoing composition project of mine is called Ancestral Numbers, um, which uses the numerology in my family and, and uh, previous generations to generate different kinds of structures and melodic and harmonic and rhythmic uh, concepts that I can uh, develop pieces around. Mm. Um, so I have two albums I'm recording next summer called Ancestral Numbers 1 and 2. Wow. How do people get um, get their hands on your work? On- um, people can find me online at jasonrobinson.com. JasonRobinson.com. I'm also on Bandcamp. 
Uh, I think that's jasonrobinson.bandcamp.com. That's how you can purchase, listen to and purchase music directly from me, um, from the artist. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bandcamp. Uh, if people don't know about Bandcamp, I would check it out, bandcamp.com. They offer uh, special promotions on, I think it's the first Friday of every month, where they waive their fees, their commission fees, so that artists take more of your uh, of of your payment to them directly without a middle party involved. Mm. So bandcamp.com. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, you also have... Uh, a uh, saxophone quartet in the works? Yeah, next summer I'm recording a project called The Cardinal Directions that I've been working on for a while. I'm a v- big fan of saxophone quartet music, especially coming out of the jazz and African-American tradition, um, the World Saxophone Quartet in particular, Rova Saxophone Quartet, Heroes of Mine from California. From California, um, Those two ensembles in particular have inspired me for years and I've rarely had the opportunity to play or compose saxophone quartet music. So um, I've been using different world traditions that have, that use east, west, north, south as a sort of cosmology to, um, to inspire this uh, movement of pieces. It's four movements, 16 pieces in total. I'm going to record that next summer as well. Wow. And do you have the saxophonist in mind? I think Marty Ehrlich's going to be involved. Okay. And... Um, uh, Alan Chase, who's a fantastic saxophonist in the Boston area. Those are two of the, f- and then me being a third. Um, the fourth is still yet to be determined. You looking for a baritone player or not necessarily? Alan Chase is a fantastic oh. bar- baritone saxophonist okay. and alto saxophonist. Great, so. great. Yeah, we're, we're going to be presenting uh, Alex Harding um, in February as part of Cahill El Zabar's uh, Ethnic Heritage Ensemble. That'll be great. So, uh, if you're looking for a baritone saxophonist, <laughs> but you probably know, yeah. So, um, great, Jason. It's really been such a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I love talking to m- about music with you. And uh, Likewise. Yeah, and so... I, I must say, when Jason moved here to the Valley 14 years ago, he really energized the scene. A lot of times people come to teach at one of the five colleges and they sort of get lost in behind the walls of academia. And one of the things I really appreciate about your uh, work here is how much you've thrown yourself into the Valley jazz scene. You were shedding at uh, at the Green Street Trio concert at, at the Drake on Tuesday, and you're just a ubiquitous presence, and it really has enlivened the scene, so thank you. And not only that, he's helping to create an, this new generation of, of musicians, which is just such a gift to all of us. Well, thank you. This area has such a rich... An abundance legacy. of riches, you say. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. an, a rich, rich legacy of, of incredible musicians, Marion Brown, Yousef Latif... Archie well, shared so many. And two of the people who deserve credit for that are right here. Jason yes. Robinson, thank you so much. Glenn Siegel, you've done it again. Thank you, Everybody both. else, be careful out there. There's some weather coming in. And, um, hey, one more day before the Christmas weekend. Yes. Happy Hanukkah to those who are observing, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a 1,000 members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund Live and local helps those news with limited talk means for Northampton and the Valley music. since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.